Today we will discuss propaganda and its effects on man's being. Under the rule of propagandists, there are three types of people. Those who go along to get along, those who desire secret knowledge, and those who seek the truth that transcends propagandists and their power. History demonstrates that propaganda makes the truth unknowable. If this is the case, what recourse does man have in a context when societal, legal, and political truth has vanished? You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Podcast, a place for thinkers. Join us as we explore the depths of theology, philosophy, and the Christian intellectual life. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Podcast, a place for thinkers. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts. We really enjoy getting all the comments and encouragement, and I really appreciate that. And so if you want to keep encouraging us and you want to keep sending us stuff, send it to mail at solomonscorner.com. We would really appreciate it. We will check those uh, emails before the show. And if you have questions or you want more clarification on something, we will add it into the next episode and cover it. So we're going to talk about propaganda and truth. And... Um, also, yeah, don't forget, you can follow us on all the social media. You can, you know, Twitter, Facebook, those are the big ones we're on. We don't do Instagram, obviously, because we're an audio podcast, so, you know, deal with it. But we're going to talk about finding solid ground in darkness. Uh, another title we had for this was Truth and Propaganda. And what I want to talk about today is how do we seek the truth in a time when it seems so elusive. Today, propaganda and conspiracy theories seem to be floated from both sides of the cultural and political aisle, and there is a big distinction between those two, even though they're related. There is a decentralization of information and crisis and war. These all seem to intensify the approach that government takes to clamping down on misinformation or disinformation or malinformation, which we're going to actually talk about because those are all real things that the government has now defined. But also, it feels like citizens suddenly begin to grasp for some sort of secret knowledge that they have about what's really going on. And so this is a symptom of a time in which there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of propaganda, there's a lot of people who are scared and just want to know something. And then there's people who just want to do something. And so hopefully today we'll be able to get into some of the problems uh, philosophically with propaganda, some of the problems philosophically with how people approach living in times of propaganda and the moral implications of that. But our main question today is, can an intellectual, intellectual life integrate natural law with discipleship, and provide an answer to the challenges of living in a time when darkness permeates every institution. So today we're going to have to do a little bit of a, of a historical analysis on Russia, because if there's a group that's really good on propaganda and demonstrates just how evil something as innocent as we're here to protect you can become, we have to go through some pretty lengthy quotes because most of the time, the problem with, with propaganda is that it's 
It's ambiguous. It can be taken in the positive light or it can be taken in the extreme. And that's intentional. The goal of propaganda is not to get you to believe something. It's just to get you to doubt everything or to have no idea what the truth is and to completely cast all of your truth-seeking faculties to the authorities. And so they discredit things and they they give the appearance of finding truth and then, oh, whoops, we made a mistake and the truth is actually over here now. That is just part of the propaganda apparatus. And so the question becomes, propaganda is really as effective as it is at keeping you from knowing what is true, then what is our response? Is it apathy? Is it just go along to get along? Or is there a third way that gives hope to us in the darkness and also paves the way for future generations? And so our journey begins, believe it or not, in Gulag. I'm sure some of you won't be very surprised by that. But it's going to begin in Gulag. And what we're going to do is we're going to compare the famous, well, used to be famous, but infamous Article 58 with the current DHS language guidelines under our current terror threat status. And so we're going to go through Gulag. We're going to talk about Article 58 and how that was used specifically on language in order to persecute political enemies. And that's a very important distinction. Religious people were also persecuted, but Article 58 really emphasizes the political persecution. And then we're going to look at Black Book of Communism and how that aggregation of information demonstrates that language subversion is the primary and initial tactic that potential tyrannical governments, emphasis on potential tyrannical governments, because all governments have the potential to be tyrannical or authoritarian, take your pick. There are some nuanced distinctions, but for our purposes, we're going to treat them as the same. And then we're going to look at Orwell. And then finally, we're going to close out with what I call a, and I'm borrowing this from Etienne Gilson, uh, God and Philosophy, uh, what a shortcut looks like and how that couples together, uh, intellectual shortcut that is, and how that couples together with our own personal philosophical systems. So before we jump into propaganda and its effects, we first have to take a trip to Russia in the 1920s. For a lot of people in the millennial generation, the gulag is something that's only recently become popularized. For older generations, it's nothing new. It's really interesting, actually, to talk with people who are young about gulag and then go talk to others who are older because there's such a disparity about the novelty of the event. And for those who are curious, gulag was actually a developed term that was derived from a Russian term that uh, was spelled G-U-L for short, and it just meant administrative camps. And then it added the A-G at the end, and it became colloquially known as gulag. But it really just means uh, literally administrative camps. The gulag was originally concentration camps turned into labor camps. And Solzhenitsyn talks about how they were actually the ones, not the Nazis, who developed the idea of a concentration camp before Germany ever got an idea about it. Now, whether or not that's true that they were the inventors of it, his point is, is that on the world stage, everyone associates concentration camps with Nazi Germany, but Russia was doing this as early as the 1920s after Lenin's revolution. Now, the gulags were obviously genocidal, 
but they were also politically genius. Most people won't understand how that relationship can work. They were genocidal because obviously millions of people died in the gulags. And this was uh, not the same thing as extermination. What Stalin and the rest of the communists who implemented this system were able to do was take the political enemy and take out two, take two birds with one stone. They were able to persecute their political enemies while simultaneously acquiring from them the physical labor they needed to maintain their society and its developmental progress. And so you kill two birds with one stone. And if you read Gulag on your own, this will be a recurring theme. Solzhenitsyn will say, Gulag and the administrators were excellent at executing two birds with one stone. And he has several examples, one specifically around Christianity. Now, the purposes of our discussion, though, are not going to focus on the atrocities of Gulag or any of, any of those. What we're going to talk about is how they were able to keep it a secret for so long amongst their own people and in the West. So Solzhenitsyn says at the beginning of Gulag, Volume 2, page 9, quote, When our compatriots heard via the BBC that a citizen claimed to have discovered that concentration camps had existed in our country as far back as 1921, many of us, and many in the West too, were astonished. That early? Really? Even in 1921? Of course not. Of course he was in error, the citizen who said this. End quote. Anne Applebaum, Pulitzer Prize winner on the subject of Gulag, confirms what Solzhenitsyn describes in her early pages. She says, quote, A string of aristocrats, merchants, and other people defined as potential enemies were duly imprisoned. Notice, not actual enemies, potential enemies, were duly imprisoned by 1921. There were already 84 camps in 43 provinces, mostly designed to, quote-unquote, rehabilitate these first enemies of the people, end quote. That's in uh, Applebaum's Gulag, A History. So how do we wrap our minds around the idea that a government was able to keep hidden an entire network of labor camps and concentration camps from its citizens while simultaneously sending millions of its citizens to those camps in secret. For 20 years, it went unnoticed. It was largely due to two factors, really three factors. One, propaganda. Two, propaganda as law, which is Article 58. And three, apathy of the people. So while it's true that Lenin's revolution preceded the inauguration of the camps, it's also the case that unjust laws and propaganda were two primary mechanisms that were employed during the metastasizing of Gulag. The former were used to intimidate, and the latter to distract. And so what you have is propaganda coming in and making everything murky, making it so that you can't necessarily know what's going on, so that you can't stand up for your neighbor or yourself. And then the second thing was unjust laws that they were able to use as propaganda claiming authority when in actuality the laws themselves were not laws at all, but instead just a cudgel to beat people with. And so now this brings us to Article 58 and the DHS. One of the biggest problems today is that people have forgotten that only God knows the intent of man. 
And what I mean by this is that when, when you look at the discourse today on social media and the news, everyone attributes motive. Everyone, especially politicians, well, he wants to do this because what he really wants, but that person doesn't necessarily know what he really wants, and or the person who is supposedly the evil uh, genius. Nobody really knows what that is, and both sides of the cultural divide and political divide make these accusations. Well, what you really want is you want to you want to hurt moms, or what you really want to do is you want to hurt kids. We don't actually have to say that. We can just say. Your ideas mean that people will get hurt. Whether that person wants to hurt them or not is irrelevant. What matters is what the effects are. God knows the heart, but we see the effects. And that's a biblical principle. It's also a philosophical principle. We cannot read the hearts or minds of men. Even when you have a close relationship like with a spouse, it's merely an estimation when you see a certain facial expression or when you see something else. You're making a guess based on years and years of experience with each other, and we all know that that's not infallible because when you guess and you get it wrong, someone's going into the doghouse. So what ends up happening in a time when truth is not able to be found is authorities suddenly begin to try and prop themselves up as the givers of truth, and people end up trying to demonstrate that they have the secret truth. And what we need to do is we need to focus on the transcendent truth, the truths that transcend propaganda that are true not because uh, the government says they're true or because um, you've had some secret blog that you've been on telling you everything that's going on. The transcendent truths are grounded in the very existence of reality, and they're affirmed by scripture, and they can be demonstrated by reason. And so as spiritual thinking beings, and I would actually argue maybe sometime in a future podcast, I would say that the act of thinking is a spiritual act, not a material act. But we would say that we need to pursue the transcendent based on the things that are undeniable, that man is different from the animals, that he has a nature that that nature informs us of his needs, both materially, spiritually, and politically, and that all truth is God's truth. And so you don't need a textbook or an authority to tell you that man is not a dog. And indeed, as we'll see in Orwell, the very state that the character is currently fighting against in that book attempts to claim not just that they are the, the givers of truth, but they attempt to put themselves in the position of God being able to change the substance of reality itself, and you will bend the knee or die. That's, that is ultimately communism's end goal, is to become an intermediary between you and the actual existence known as God. So the way that this looks practically is that a lot of times you'll see conspiracy theories followed by this rhetorical question. Now, why would they want to do that? There's always a they, and they're just this ambiguous group. And the conspiracy theorist just lets you kind of fill in the image of whatever crazy group of conspiracy theorist 
villains that will fill that that gap for you. The They. There was even a movie called The They, and it was a horror movie about these demons that came out of nowhere. And it was just They. Now, despite failing to prove the theory true, they imply that it is the case, that their conspiracy theory is just true, because they know why the They are doing what they are doing. The assumption is subtle, but demons have been known to work that way. Instead, what someone should do is look at what is unquestionable. One of the most important facts is the actual written laws and guidelines and applying them to your beliefs about the natural rights of man, the transcendent laws. Written laws are facts. Is it true what they are saying? Are these going to be abused? If they can be abused, what does that look like? There's no conspiracy theory here about what the government's rights actually are as written down in legal documents. You can go and find those things out and ask yourself if you agree or disagree with those things. But you should have your own understanding of some of these things that you can juxtapose those laws and facts against. And so all this really means is that you are asking the, a, a, you're just asking a basic question of what does it mean to be human, and you're trying to answer that question in your day-to-day life. And if not, you should start now. So with this in mind, I want you to keep in mind this question. What does it mean to be human as we go through Article 58, Section 10 from Russia's USSR days, and then also the DHS public statements on language. So a little intro. Article 58 was the basis for charging somebody with a sentence to go to the gulag. And this would be a minimum of about 10 years or 25 years. And some didn't even have an upper limit. Now, if you want to read the whole thing, Article 58, you can do that in Gulag Volume 1, um, starting around page 63. Uh, That's Gulag Volume 1 by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, starting in page 63. But we're going to focus right in on Section 10. And this is a, a quote that from Solzhenitsyn. He says, Section 10, quote, Propaganda or agitation concerning an appeal for the overthrow, subverting or weakening of the Soviet power, and equally the dissemination or preparation or possession of literary materials of similar content, end quote. Solzhenitsyn continues, For this section, in peacetime, a minimum penalty only was set, not any less, not too light. No upper limit was set for the maximum penalty. Quote, subverting and weakening, end quote. The government could include any idea which did not coincide with or rise to the level of intensity of the ideas expressed in the newspaper or any particular day. After all, anything which does not strengthen must weaken. Indeed, anything which does not completely fit in subverts. He continues, the term, and he's gonna, what he's going to do is, he's going to explain these individual terms like cons- literary materials and appeal because to us it sounds, well, you know, you don't want somebody undermining your state and you don't want somebody being dangerous. Well, of course you don't want that. And that's exactly what the propaganda is. It highlights a truth and then is u- that truth is used to exploit the rights of people. So he goes into this further. He says the term, quote, preparation of literary materials, end quote, covered every letter, note, or private diary, even when only the original document existed. Now, 
when you read preparation of literary materials, this is me talking now, you might think, well, yeah, you know, published materials. We don't want somebody to publish something saying that you should, this is how you make, you know, bombs to do stuff. We don't want that. But journals and diaries and letters and personal communications between friends and spouses, well, that seems a little bit of a problem. He continues, thus happily expanded what thought was there, whether merely in the mind, spoken aloud or jotted down, which was not covered by Section 10. In other words, what wasn't covered by Section 10? If you can cover everybody's personal information, if you merely look like you were thinking something subversive, you could go to Gulag. Now, another section, and this is emphasized, this idea of just even making a small blunder was emphasized by another section that protected political allies. In Section 7, it's specifically talked about protecting the party. So if you misspoke or if you insulted somebody who was a member of the party, that could get you thrown into the gulag. Now, at this point, somebody's probably asking, but what's the reasoning behind this? Why would they make it so easy to be thrown in the gulag? Well, again, you have to remember, there's no incentive to have businesses in this time. And so there's no production happening. Secondly, you don't want to lose control. And so you kill two birds with one stone. You're able to take your political enemies out. You're able to crush the spirits of anybody who would think otherwise about the party. And you're able to also offset the uh, economic fallout of you taking over the means of production and all industry in the country. So now the question is, returning to our original intro to this section, as you read or as you hear about a, a leader and a, and a political group undermining the human rights of speech in such a way that you could literally get thrown in jail for 25 years for, for something as small as a diary entry, which, by the way, this is before the Internet, so, you know, it's literally in your house, which means they were searching your houses. Do you even care about the intent behind Stalin or Lenin? Does that even matter at this point in the execution of the authoritarian regime? I can say from personal experience of reading Gulag that that might be part of your curiosity at the beginning of reading the book. But what ends up happening as you continue into the book becomes how did they actually do this? Not why did they do this? How could they have pulled this off? Because it becomes almost unbelievable. In fact, I've told people that if you didn't actually have the books like Gulag, and somebody created a fictional story that copied exactly what Gulag said really happened, I don't think people would believe it as realistic because it's so hard to wrap your mind around the idea that somebody could be this evil in the psychological sense. It's not that people aren't evil like Hitler, but that's an evil that we understand directly as morally reprehensible. But what's harder about communism and some of these dictatorships is that they went to such lengths to destroy your perception of reality, that it's, it, it doesn't seem like it's even possible that they could have pulled it off, but they did. And so the fact that they were able to pull this off actually eclipses the question of intent. And just to remind you, the question of intent is something we don't have access to. And so ironically, reading the evil of, of Gulag actually highlights the fact that what actually matters is the effects of whatever government authority is in power and the propositions that they put forward. 
The effects are what matter. It doesn't matter why somebody is doing a bad job. What matters is that they are doing a bad job. And this fact alone can protect you from conspiracy theories going too far amok and from being too trusting of the propaganda that inevitably comes out during crisis and decentralization and pandemics. Because during those times, government has an incentive to maintain control. So, and that's not to say that that's necessarily a bad thing. It's just a fact. Doesn't mean that they're trying to control for nefarious purposes. It's just a fact that those circumstances produce an incentive for government to be more overreaching. And history bears this out. So now we turn to the Black Book of Communism by Harvard Press. And I just want to reiterate, part of the reason why we, are, we have a lot of long quotes in today's show is because when you try to talk about the effects of propaganda just on your own, they are hard to believe because the language is inherently ambiguous in its interpretation, precisely so that you can't attribute motive or determine effect until there's actual execution of the laws in question or of the propaganda in question. And so a lot of this only comes to light after the fact, which only demonstrates even more so that we have to find those immutable and eternal truths that are grounded in Scripture and God's revelation, as well as in His creation. Those things that are true, whether you're in Gulag, America, Israel, or the Garden of Eden, those are the truths that we have to be pursuing in times when truth, political truth specifically, is so elusive. Some might even say that there's never been a time where political truth is not elusive. But for us, we turn to the Black Book of Communism. And the interesting thing here is that this is an anthology of survivors of communism. And in the introduction, which, by the way, it's an expensive book, but it is the introduction alone is worth the cost of the book. Highly recommend, and I know some of you have already purchased this, so, you know, if you haven't, get it on your shelf. But in this series of essays, the, the authors attribute a solution to human rights rooted in the Judeo-Christian ethic, that, that natural law and the Judeo-Christian worldview are the antidotes to the vices of communism. And they even portray communism as a religion, as we'll see a little bit later. But one of the things they say here is perhaps the single greatest evil was the perversion of language. And this is talking about communist regimes across the world. They, it's an anthology about all of them. And the uh, author that we're reading from primarily right now is Stéphane Courtois. And Stéphane says this, Perhaps the single greatest evil was the perversion of language, as if by magic the concentration camp system was turned into a re-education system, quote-unquote. And the tyrants became, quote-unquote, educators, who transformed the people of the old society into the, quote-unquote, new people, the Zex, a term used that's Z. E-K-S, or Z-E-K-S, a term used for Soviet concentration camp prisoners were forcibly, quote-unquote, invited to place their trust in a system that enslaved them. In China, the concentration camp prisoner is called a, quote-unquote, student, and he is required to study the correct thought of the party and to reform his own faulty thinking. Reminds me of the uh, days in college when I was at Florida State and her coach would tell us that we had mandatory volunteer work. 
But that's a silly example of what propaganda actually is, is you're volunteering because you have to. And everybody knows that those examples are easy to spot. But the reason why they're easy to spot is because truth about reality is knowable. The definitions of mandatory and volunteer have real meaning, and they can't be juxtaposed next to each other. What we used to call it was forced service. Now we turn to the Department of Homeland Security and their recently increased threat level of terror. And this is all public information. It's all on the DHS. And they have listed, as of February 7th, 2022, a heightened state of alert that is, at the time of this recording, extended to June 7th, 2022. And according to the DHS, we are under a heightened state of alert because of mis, dis, and malinformation. And you can read all the details on the DHS site. And so that's what I'm reading from right now. And what they portray here is misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. Um, And they have definitions for all of these. And they are defined as information activities, quote unquote. And the definitions for each are below. Quote, misinformation is false, but not created or shared with the intention of causing harm. Disinformation is deliberately created to mislead, harm, or manipulate a person, social group, organization, or country. Malinformation, this is the important one, is based on fact, but used out of context to mislead, harm, or manipulate. Foreign and domestic threat actors use MDM, or missed, dis, or malinformation campaigns to cause chaos, confusion, and division. These malign actors are seeking to interfere with and undermine our democratic institutions and national cohesiveness. Now, just to remind you, let's go back to section 10 one more time. Propaganda, this is section 10, propaganda or agitation concerning an appeal for the overthrow, subverting, or weakening of the Soviet power, and equally, this is the important one, the dissemination or preparation or possession of literary materials of similar content. And remember, these terms were extended beyond what was commonsensically meant by those terms. And this is what he says. The term preparation of literary materials covered every letter, note, or private diary, even when only the original document existed. Thus happily expanded what thought was there, whether merely in the mind, spoken aloud, or jotted down, which was what was not covered by section 10. And so... Imagine this, just based on our own malinformation definition here. Who's going to determine the context in terms of whether it's misled the intent of the malinformation? Because couldn't malinformation be a mistake? Just somebody makes a mistake online? Do you think that that justifies somebody being investigated by the federal government? Somebody who says something about Trump in a positive light? or posts facts around, uh, or not facts, but posts their own thoughts around the election? Should they suddenly be investigated for questioning the integrity of the election? According to these definitions, it seems at least concerning on the weak interpretation of it. And so I'm not making an argument here that says the DHS is making a statement explicitly similar to what Russia has back in the 1920s. What I'm trying to say is is that we don't know the intent behind these things. Yeah, we can speculate. We can we can 
argue for it. But we can't demonstrate that, at least the majority of us. And when I say this, I mean those of us who are, are, are living in small towns and we see lots of crazy things happening in the world and the majority of our social group is just a, a, a small group at church and, and going to work. For us, a lot of the big story things that come out, we can't demonstrate to be true or false. And so we have to appeal to authority on it. So we find our favorite news source and we just trust them. But now, under the language of terror and, and threat, we are talking about information, which is primarily conveyed by speech, that this has the potential to be extended beyond what is in the best interest of human beings. And so we're coming into the application here. And so, again, apologize for the, the long quotes, but it's really, really important to have these long quotes in mind as we go into what the application is. So we don't need the intent to evaluate these items, but knowledge of the past provides us with good reason to be concerned when we see similar language, similar to, to Russia and similar to ours, being used in our own time. So keep in mind, just for example, that one conspiracy is that the pandemic was planned. And there's a book called The Great Reset. You can go and read this. And this is, this is from Klaus Schwab and others. Now, I'm not saying that this conspiracy theory is necessarily true. If I did, then that would refute everything I just said beforehand, because I don't think that we have the epistemic tools necessary at our disposal to actually prove the intent of Klaus Schwab or others. What we can do is we can read the book, and then if they tell you in the first chapter what they actually want, well, then that's them telling you what their intent is. And he does do that, but we're not talking about that today. My only point is that under these terms, if somebody were to actually say on their social media or were to actually convey to people that they thought that COVID-19 was a planned event, that this could be considered malinformation or misinformation. Now imagine that you're in Russia before Solzhenitsyn writes his book. And keep in mind, for 20 years, the citizenry did not know that the government was sending people to forced labor for 20 years. And now I want you to imagine that you're trying to convince your neighbor in Russia that the famines were artificially man-made caused famines and were intentionally induced for your demise. Based on Article 58, in Russia, you would be risking your life just to have that conversation. You would be risking your life if you just wrote that in your journal in Russia, according to Section 10 of Article 58. Now, look at how the times have changed. If you have posted something like this on social media, it can be considered misinformation or malinformation. And this gets to the idea that language is important and that it's used to subvert what the actual truth is. So if we can't trust the authorities to tell us what is true because they have an incentive to not tell us what is true, and there's some legitimacy on the fact that people don't need to know everything that the government is doing, but what are we supposed to do in the midst of conspiracy theories and a government 
that decides that they feel they should be able to control the communication of speech. I would submit that you need to, again, pursue the transcendent laws that don't have, that don't change based on the political weather or the overreach of a government. And so this brings us to our next and final section, connecting the laws. What I mean by this is the natural laws that God has instituted, as well as the spiritual laws that God has instituted. And I think there's a ministry out there that uses something like the four spiritual laws or something. That is not what I'm talking about. So um, somebody, somebody told us that, right, Lindsay? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's crew or something, but we're not, yeah, yeah, we're not talking about that. So just to remind, what is the main question? Let's take Russia as an example. When truth is literally unknowable and to pursue it is to risk your life. What are you to do? How should you live? And our time is not as bleak or dark as that time. So as we enter into this section, let's bear that in mind. This is not a pessimistic thought experiment. It's merely meant to say, can we derive a true application no matter how bad it gets? And so let's try and see if this idea of connecting the natural law with the spiritual law and the pursuit of the transcendent truths found in nature and in God's revelation can give us something practical to do now. So with that, one of my favorite philosophers, Etienne Gilson, has a book called God and Philosophy. And in this book, the question is proposed, well, if we have revelation, then why even bother working out our understanding of God through reason? And Gilson has a very short quip, or pithy quote, as my friend would say. Revelation is a shortcut. And what he means by that is that it is best to take the shortcut. There's no doubt about it. But the long view is rewarding as well. And so if you're crushed for time and you don't have a lot of time to take the long view, take the shortcut. But if you have the time and you have the will and you want an adventure, take the long way. This is the proper way to think of the relationship, I think, between faith and reason. They are always present. You always have the option for the shortcut. You always have the option for the long way. And when we integrate the two, it is the equivalent of knowing the fastest way to our church versus the longer, more scenic route. It is this relationship that is necessary to understand in a world that becomes thick with the darkness of propaganda and unjust laws. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a shortcut first, and then we're going to look at the long way. Our shortcut for today can be found, well, there's a, we're going to take a couple shortcuts. Let's just put it that way and kind of tie them all together in a nice bow. It's going to be like a shortcut Hot Wheels track. Think of it that way. Um, I guess that analogy is kind of breaking down, but have mercy. But the passages I want to talk about are Deuteronomy 11.13, Matthew 22.37-40, through 40, and then we're going to look at 2 Chronicles 33 and First uh, Peter 4.13 in Deuteronomy and Matthew. And I'm going to be using the Net Bible for these two and then the New King James for the other two. Not for any particular reason. It's just that I happen to have an NKJV next to me, and it was pretty impromptu. So, but Deuteronomy 11.13. 
Love the Lord your God and serve him with all your mind and being. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40, Jesus said to the religious leader, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the laws and the prophets depend on these two commandments. Now, within the Christian philosophical tradition, and you'll just have to accept my word for this because I'm not going to get into it uh, in too much detail, but the medieval philosophical tradition, God is existence itself. Now, that does not mean that we're espousing a, a, a pantheism or a panentheism. All we're saying is, is that there has to be, when we say being, we mean existence. And things either exist or they don't exist. And the question is, where do the things that exist get their existence? Well, it has to be from something that didn't receive its existence from something else. Say that again. Our existence has to come from something else that did not receive its existence from something else. In other words, an uncaused cause. Anything that has existence had to have received its existence from an uncaused existence. And this is the philosophical basis for why the scriptural passage, love the Lord your God with all your being, I think is a more favorable translation, but I'm biased because I'm a philosopher, so I like it when the word being shows up. But in all seriousness, it's because in worshiping God, we are orienting our being back to God. And it's interesting that there's a juxtaposition on this translation, actually, of mind and being. And Jim, if you're listening, I'm going to probably have to talk to you about that. But this is really, really vital and has a lot of, I know it doesn't seem like it at, at face value, but it has value in the midst of totalitarian and authoritarian communist propaganda. And I'll show you what I mean by reading a section from George Orwell's 1984. Spoiler alert. In this scene, O'Brien, the villain, captured the main character, Winston, and he's torturing him over what is the nature of existence. Who controls the present controls the past, said O'Brien nodding his head with slow approval. Is it your opinion, Winston, that's the good guy, that the past has real existence or being? Again, the feeling of helplessness descended upon Winston. His eyes flitted toward the dial. He not only did not know whether yes or no was the answer that would save him from the pain. He did not even know which answer he believed to be the true one. O'Brien smiled faintly. You are no metaphysician, Winston, he said. Until this moment, you had never considered what is meant by existence. O'Brien continues on in Orwell's, well, Orwell through the voice of O'Brien continues on, and he asks the question about the past, and he continues to uh, torture Winston psychologically over this question of existence. At the core of the intellectual life is the pursuit of understanding the world as it is and its relationship to God. In short, it's the study of existence itself, which we call God. 
and the effects of God on man and his relationship to God and his neighbor. And in times of freedom, that is when we have the time to, in our pursuit of a relationship with God, we also walk with God through creation, seeing the wonders that all of the things he has made, like Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And it goes forth, not as actual speech, but like speech to the ends of the earth. When we have the freedom to go on the adventure of studying and learning God's nature and the nature of our neighbors, we learn how to love our neighbors, at, love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. And part of what that means is to pursue an understanding of what it means to be human and what God intends to redeem us to. So that that way we can actually love man as a human in the way that God loves us as human. And so the question becomes, in an era of propaganda, how are we to live? Well, if you do not understand the transcendent truths about what the rights of man are, then you will run into a dilemma because the language of Scripture can be manipulated, as we've seen over the years, not just with COVID-19 and the debates around Romans 13, but also in years past around slavery. Words are important. They are the battlefield of ideas. They are the, the tools on which the spiritual battles for the mind and hearts of men take place. That doesn't mean that everybody has to be incredibly articulate or, or winsome. Paul says that that's not the criteria. What matters is, are you right? What matters is, do you have love in communicating what is right? And that doesn't necessarily have to be logical argumentation or whatever. Love can be acted out as well. And so we run into this dilemma when we consider that evil governments can legislate and, and, and legislate evil and become authoritarian, especially in the context of Romans 13, if you go and read Article 58, there is nothing mentioned that is discriminatory on the basis of race, sex, or religion. And so what I mean by that is that you run into a problem because how is someone supposed to live in accordance with Romans 13 if they read Article 58? It's impossible. Because the law was not actually capable of being lived, even though they actually gave the impression that it was being lived that way. The only discrimination that occurs in Solzhenitsyn's Russia is the political party discrimination. Do you desire to further the good of Mother Russia? Isn't that what Jeremiah said, to will the good of the city? And the Christian has to ask himself, are these demons whispering, it is written, or is it Jesus? And so we return to Courtois, and he says, As is usually the case, a lie is not, strictly speaking, the opposite of the truth, and a lie will generally contain an element of truth. Perverted words are situated in a twisted vision that distorts the landscape. One is confronted with a myopic social and political philosophy. Attitudes twisted by communist propaganda are easy to correct, but it is monumentally difficult to instruct false prophets in the ways of intellectual tolerance. The first impression is always the one that lingers. Like martial artists, the communists 
thanks to their incomparable propaganda strength grounded in the subversion of language, successfully turned the tables on the criticisms leveled against their terrorist tactics, continually uniting the ranks of their militants and sympathizers by renewing the communist act of faith. Thus, they held fast to their fundamental principle of ideological belief, as formulated by Tertullian for his own era, I believe, because it is absurd. And obviously, he's taken a dig at Christianity there. But the point to focus on is the, and this happens across the board, is that language is subverted, and that is the basis for all propaganda. And so, Courtois is demonstrating here that propaganda is like a state liturgy. It is chanted from the government pulpit, and the citizens put up with it, unknowing of its effects on their mind and being. If we consider all the passages that we have considered today, we must recognize that in order to love your neighbor, we must understand our neighbor's rights and his nature. How can you love your neighbor in a virtuous way if you don't know what virtue is? How can you stand for the rights of your neighbor if you don't know the rights which transcend government? Is it proper to muzzle a man as if he were a dog? If man begins to be treated like an animal long enough, eventually he will forget what it means to be human. And this is important because it's our responsibility to remind ourselves that we are not merely animals to be corralled by the government. We have a, an actual shepherd who's actually trying to lead us to peaceful waters in the midst of valleys. And so we come back to the purpose of propaganda. It's to get you to live in fear and ignorance, fear that you will break the constantly moving laws Second, that you will live in ignorance of those truths that are not codified in paper, but in heaven. Those are the transcendent truths. They want you to forget those, whoever they is. In order to combat propaganda, we, those trying to pursue the intellectual life, must now, more than ever, become students of the eternal, of existence itself, because God is existence, and he is the sustainer of all being, including the being with which you are to worship him. It is your mind that informs you of how you ought to orient towards God. This does not mean that you must be a genius to be holy. What it means is that your mind directs your will toward the proper object of man, which is God. But if we allow ourselves to become apathetic and to be corralled like cattle, then we will worship God like cattle and love our neighbors like animals, with survival in mind rather than love. Propaganda does not desire that you believe the truth. It desires that you remain ignorant, that you believe nothing rather than anything. This makes the solution to propaganda quite simple, but difficult to implement. Suppose a thought experiment. Let's say you've just had your Bible taken from you in a communist country. And you're a young, scrappy, young Christian or religious person. Choose your, choose your religious text or the God that you worship. Because I'm switching perspectives here because communism favors no religion. But all human beings have access to nature and its creator. So suppose you have just had your Bible taken from you in a communist country. You have very little Bible memorized because you have used the internet freely up until the new regime began to clamp down on what was considered approved material. How are you going to worship God? 
God may intervene. But read Gulag and discover what that looks like before you pine some foolish nonsense about how there is light in a dark place when you don't understand how dark it can get. Those stories are there, but they're not what Americans would think them to be. God will do what he will do, and our purpose of this exercise is to determine if miracles are required or not. Does God have to drop a Bible in your cell? Does he have to appear nightly, telling you what the Bible says in order to keep you nourished and spiritually fed? It seems that Scripture tells us precisely this, and Solzhenitsyn and others who have gone through incredible suffering, as we'll see in a little bit, would affirm. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And as we've talked about on this show more than once, and we'll definitely continue to reiterate because it's important, is that Romans states that God's attributes are clearly seen, the invisible ones specifically. And if we can know God's invisible attributes from from the nature in which we live, whether that be in our comfy homes or in a prison cell, it follows that we can seek the truth, even if we don't have the shortcut we so desperately depend on. The Bible. This is what is essential, that one understand that no matter where you go, you do have a path to God, but it might be the long way. This is not meant to convict you or to put undue burdens on the listener. It's to remind you that suffering is part of the adventure. When we look at 2 Chronicles 33, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, but he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Summary, Manasseh gets captured, so he gets taken in by the Assyrians. And they carried him off to Babylon and bound him with bronze fetters. It says so right here. Therefore the Lord brought up the captains of the army of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon, which sucks. So let's just let that sit in for a minute. Hooks and bound him with bronze fetters. And this is the New King James Version. Now, when Manasseh was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and prayed to him, and he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And in First Peter 4.13, we read in a different context, suffering for God rather than uh, because we're in sin, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. And so the long way is really up to God in a lot of cases. But while you're in freedom, you may have the opportunity to pursue God in ways that, while not necessary, are incredibly beneficial and will bolster you and strengthen you in the mind and give you tools to help you have a reason for the hope that's within you, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how thick the lies get, and help you love your neighbor, even at the risk of suffering. And so, if God's attributes are seen from nature, we ought not waste the resource of freedom. We should read and study 
and develop our thoughts on Scripture and nature, that we would become students of all of God's truth, not just the truth that's revealed, but trying to integrate that which is naturally revealed, and that's what, that which is specially revealed. Take your pick of a great philosopher and worship God at having created a mind that was so much better than yours. I would recommend starting with Aristotle, Plato, Aquinas, Augustine. They're not right on everything, but they were clearly gifted intellects, and they are indebted to the same creator you are indebted to. And God has blessed you with your own unique intellectual abilities. These are gifts from God, and so we should challenge ourselves to use these gifts intellectually to see God in the little things, not in a childish way, but in a way that prepares us for the mental and spiritual battles that propaganda and conspiracy theories provoke. We must seek the truths that transcend the dialogue, the truths about human nature, the rights derived from that nature, and be stewards of these natures, ours and our neighbors, in such a way that those who see us recognize that it is only possible to live in accordance with our nature because we first loved God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then we must also integrate and extend what we understand our natures to be with revelation, not just loving our neighbor, but loving our enemies. And in doing so, partaking in the sufferings of Christ, which is a very difficult thing to do, and I by no means think that I am capable on my own, and neither are you, but in being faithful and stewarding our minds while the opportunity presents itself, we can remember and know that God will use all things together, good and evil, for those that love him. And so, to summarize, transcendent truths are the solid ground in the darkness of propaganda. They are the pursuit and understanding of being itself and its effects that trickle down into what we call creation and point a light to our final end as revealed in Scripture, God. Thanks for listening, and don't forget, keep thinking. You ready? <laughs> I got it. I got it. Today we will discuss propaganda and its effects on man's being. Under the rule of propaganda, there are three types of people. Those who go along to get along. Those who seek secret knowledge. And wives who are bi- <laughs> All right, come back, come back. It'd be so funny if you like put that one first and then it's like, okay, but for reals. You know? <laughs> okay.